I mean, there's a phrase in a moment that is not intended to be derogatory to anyone here, but may sound that way. Uh, any public sector government employees in our midst? Okay, yeah, Sean, I was thinking about you actually. So apologies on the front end, though I'm sure what I'm going to share does not apply to folks here. By the way, I used to be employed by the public services too, so I, I, I guess I know of which I speak. So have you heard the phrase, uh, it's good enough for government work? <laughs> it's good enough for government work. It's this concept that somebody's just drawn a paycheck but really doesn't have any, any real interest, no skin in the game in performing their work. They'll say, you know, whatever got done, it was, it was good enough. It was good enough for government work. Really that thought that uh, whatever it is, uh, standard, substandard a little bit, we're not worried, it, it's done, it's good enough. If you're a person in that environment, the good enough environment, that a good enough isn't good enough, good enough for government work isn't good enough, what's your experience in that arena? And generally, uh, for myself or for some of you that I know are in this today, uh, don't you find that you're the butt of jokes, you're working too hard, slow down, take a break, uh, because you're making those other folks look bad. And so they want, they want you to come down to the, that level of it's good enough because otherwise you're showing them up. And you know, if you want to be productive and if you take pride and joy, and really we should take pleasure in the work that we get to do, we don't want that standard, so we want to rise above that. But when we do, we become a target for those for whom it's good enough. It's good enough for government work. We're going to be in Psalm 69 this morning. And this song describes a time in David's life when he had severe persecution. And it's not because he was somehow in sin. We've looked at Psalm 51. That was a time when he was. He knew, I'm guilty before God. I've done some more horrendous things. This wasn't such a time. This was a time when he's living for Christ, living for God. And he's putting God and God's things first. And the, the outcome for him is persecution, sorrow, and suffering. Again, not because he's doing anything wrong, but because compared to the folks around him, he's trying to do with great zeal and passion, with all his heart, he's trying to put God and God's things first. And because of that, he's suffering notably. Uh, James Boyce uh, helpfully introduces this psalm this way. He's talking about a couple of things. Uh, he says this is one of the clearest of the Messianic Psalms. Now I'll just tell you, if, when you read commentaries and you read a variety of teachers, a guy I love to quote usually, he says this is not a Messianic Psalm. And uh, James Boyce says it's one of the clearest Messianic Psalms. So you know as you read or if you study, uh, everyone doesn't agree on numerous things. But by Messianic Psalm we mean that this speaks specifically about Christ. So David's going to tell us his story his suffering, but we're going to see that his story is meant to tell us something about his descendant, the Messiah, Jesus, who would come. Elements of David's story are going to be reflected in Jesus' story. So Boyce says it's the third most cited psalm in the New Testament. Seven of the 36 verses are directly quoted in the New Testament. It speaks notably and specifically of Jesus in his role as Savior and Messiah. And Boyce's comments here, I think, are helpful, especially for the Messianic Psalms, but, but um, sometimes, sometimes beyond that too. Listen to what he says. As we go through this this morning, we want to do what he recommends. The way to study the psalm is to keep three important overlapping reference points in mind. So when we think of David, this is part of David's life story. David writes the psalm, so it's his story. He says, when we think of David, we remind ourselves how difficult life must have been for him, even though he was the powerful and esteemed king of Israel. So David's psalm, David's experience, what's that look like? He says, then when we think of Jesus, we try to enter into his genuine humanity and realize more fully what he endured from sinful human beings for our sakes. And we're going to highlight this as we go through. So the second tier is, 
How does this speak of Christ? How does this connect us with Jesus? What do we see about Christ through David's song? And then last, when we think of ourselves and our experiences, we will be encouraged to endure and carry on faithfully for God, looking to Jesus as our great enabling example. So that third one is, what do we do with this? How does this speak to me in my current circumstance? Or even if it's something I put away for the future, how will this help me in the future? So three different tiers there. And then I'll read, as I do every time on these lessons, Alan Ross's summary. He says, because of his zeal, that's a key term in the psalm, because of his zeal for the house of the Lord, the psalmist laments the reproach and antagonisms of his enemies, as well as the indifference of his family and friends, and prays for the utter devastation of his enemies. We'll talk about that specifically near the end confident that the Lord will answer his prayer and restore the fortunes of the nation. So we're going to go through the psalm this way. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that the, the story of Job is written in cycles. You get cycles of dialogue. Well, that's a little bit like this psalm. So we're going to have, and this is Mike's breakdown of the psalm. This is my outline. Your study Bible may have this a little different, which is fine. But we're going to start with the first six verses. And what we're going to see there is we're going to see a prayer at the beginning and the end and David's lament in between. So first six verses are going to start with lament. That, that's the troubles I'm experiencing. So I've got lament with prayer. And then I'm going to follow that with two more cycles. I'm going to have a lament with a prayer for help. I'm going to have a lament with a prayer for judgment. And then I'm going to conclude with this high call of praise. So that's where we're going We've got some cycles that we'll work through. So if you've got your Bibles, open those up, or your apps. This is Psalm 69. The heading there says, To the choir master, according to lilies of David. So it's written to be sung by God's people in his presence, according to lilies. Whatever you want to say it means, I might go along with. We don't know what that means. Probably it's a given tune or melody. It's a way of singing this song and it's of David. So starting with those first six verses, and by the way, you know, one of the reasons that people love the book of Psalms, for many Christians, it's their favorite place, it's their go-to place, uh, it's because it so uh, aptly and regularly communicates to our own experiences of life. So you'll notice as we go through here, and we say, again, compare maybe Psalm 51. We know real specifically what David was writing about. You know the specifics of what he's referring to. In these songs, don't know. He's not giving us the specifics. He's telling us what his suffering felt like. And then there's just a couple of references about people are lying about me and my, my family's doing this. But we have no specific information about what brought all this up. And, and because of that... <clears throat> excuse me, it's easier for us to say that's like I feel. So my, the specifics of my life and my circumstance might not, not line up with David's, but I say I know what that feels like, and so the psalm speaks to me as well. So first six verses there, he starts out of the gate. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. That's what it feels like. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. We would think of quicksand. I'm sinking in quicksand. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. So going back quickly over David's experience, he says, I'm drowning don't know, what it, don't know what it looks like. This is what it feels like. Lord, I'm going under. I'm drowning. Would you save me? Or he says, I'm sinking down. Would you pull me out? Waves are sweeping over me. Deliver me. Uh, for Mike, when I am down and I'm calling out to God, my image is I'm in a hole in the ground. 
and I've got my hand up and I'm calling for help and I'm waiting for God to reach down with his hand and lay hold of me. I can't crawl out and pull me out. But that's what David's saying. I need help. I can't fix this. God, I'm crying out to you for help. Save me. He says, I've waited for you. Now, most Christians can relate to this. I've waited for you, but I've seen no answer yet. I've been praying. I've been praying so much that my my throat is parched. I've worn my throat out because I've been talking to God so much, but I haven't seen the answer. Or he says, uh, my eyes are worn out. My eyes are, are slowly closing because I'm fatigued and tired as I've been looking and waiting for God to come home and fix this thing that's going on. And he says, those who oppress me, there's not a few of them. There's a lot of them. They're many. And he says, they're mighty. They have power to influence what I experience. And they have power to influence others. And remember, this is by David. He's the king of Israel. He's God's chosen man and God's chosen nation. And this is his experience among God's people. <laughs> you guys ever found out that sometimes the most dangerous place to be relationally is among other Christians? <laughs> it is. This isn't just outside. Remember, this is David suffering persecution in Israel by Jews, okay? This isn't the enemy outside the camp. This is opposition from within. The church can be a very dangerous place relationally. Uh, I found that to be true many times, and if you haven't yet, God bless you. And I hope it stays just that way. Uh, we've said it before, but it bears repeating. If I'm putting God and God's things first, and I expect my life to be rosy because of that, I'm probably going to be disappointed. That Jesus has promised his followers not less persecution, opposition, suffering, misunderstanding, but more. So even though David's in a place where that shouldn't necessarily be the norm, that's the norm for him, even among God's covenant people, with his high-placed setting. Now, look at verse 5 and the way this pivots. So he describes what suffering felt like, what opposition felt like. But look at verse 5. He says to God, this is honesty. This is another reason why people love Scripture. People that do love the Bible love it in, in one regard at least for this. Uh, God's honest about us, and he's honest about himself. But So God shows us the upside of his heroes, and he shows us the, the ugly underbelly, right? He shows it all. It's honest. So David says this, verse 5, On the other hand, Lord, uh, it's not that I'm completely innocent. I've been foolish, and I've sinned. Now, his sin and his folly are not what has brought up this current circumstance. They're not part of that. But as he's praying, he comes before God acknowledging that he's not perfect, that he's not coming on his own merit. So he's saying on one hand, Lord, my sins are known to you. The people who are shouting me down and seeking to oppress me, they don't know the secret sins, the thoughts, the follies, but you do. And so as I approach you in prayer, I'm not doing so saying I'm all that, I'm just saying, you know it, but that's not why this is going on. So I'm approaching you with humility. I recognize my own faults and failings and sins. And that's a great way to go to God, isn't it? Humbly, because we know, you know, we're the stuff of clay, right? And God's life in us, we are cracked jars. We are not all that, even with Christ's life in us. So he goes with humility saying, Lord, I get it. As I pray to you, it's not because I can come and stand in my own righteousness and my own sufficiency you're aware of my sins they're not part of what's going on outside but you're aware and by the way um, when the bottom falls out of your life it's always a good time to say lord are you trying to show me something or are you trying to tell me something you can take that too far some people are prone to self-recrimination and so something goes wrong and i say oh god I, I did something wrong but i have no idea what it is i'm not saying that but sometimes when we tend to get more serious when we're in pain. And so it's a great time to ask God, Lord, is there something you want me to learn through this? Is there something you want to show me through this? If there is, great. And guys, the Holy Spirit, he can do that for us, right? He, he convicts of sin, right? That's part of what he does. So Christians have the Spirit. If we say, Lord, if you want me to hear something, to know something in this, I, I'm confident you'll show me. And if I don't get that from the Lord, I assume 
That's not an issue. He's not bringing it up for that purpose. Then if you look at verse 6, <clears throat> David's a good shepherd, right? Where'd God take him when he raised him up from obscurity? He's just on the back 40 looking after a few sheep that belong to his dad, right? But he's a shepherd. When he faces a giant, he says, I've done this before. I've faced bears and lions to protect my dad's sheep. He's a good shepherd. And then he takes that role, that serious role of shepherding, and he applies it to the nation. And that's why you see in verse 6, he's being hammered. And he understands that what happens to him affects the people he leads. And guys, do you know this too? Uh, if you're a husband and a father, if you're a grandparent, uh, if you have a place of leadership in some environment, do you know that what happens to you and what you do and what you say, it affects other people? And so what is the effect we have on other people look like? So David's prayer here in verse 6 is, Lord, please don't let what's going on against me harm the people I lead, harm your people. I'm taking a hit, but let it stop there. I don't want my fellow Jews, the people I'm responsible to shepherd, I don't want them hanging out over what's occurring to me now. So he prays for himself, verse 1, God save me. But at the end, he's also saying, Lord, I get it, that this can have negative consequences for your people. Would you prevent that from happening? So we've got prayer, save me. We've got a prayer, Lord, save your people. And in between, we've got, and my life feels like I'm drowning and I can't get out. Would you save me? So if you look at this, so that's David's experience, right? If you look at this and we say it's Messianic Psalm, uh, some of this you may say is not as obvious as others. Some verses in this psalm are specifically cited of Jesus by Jesus in the New Testament. But there's so many things that are described that it sounds, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus' experience. If you look at uh, verse 3, Jesus on the cross, you remember when you get uh, flogged and you've sweat and you're dehydrated, uh, what happens to your throat? You're parched. Jesus on the cross his throat is parched, and his eyes on the cross, in contrast to David, but similar. David says, my eyes are closing because I'm tired of waiting. I'm worn out. Jesus' eyes, of course, close on the cross in death. He knows what it's like to have a parched throat and his eyes to close. If you look at verse 4, verse 4 is quoted in John 15, 25. Jesus said, this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. David says, I'm being, uh, uh, people are adversarial towards me, and it's not because of what I've done. And Jesus cites that, and he says, they've hated me without cause. It's quoting this verse. Uh, Jesus was surrounded by many mighty antagonists at the cross. On the cross, Jesus pays for the sins of the world, sins he didn't commit. David says rhetorically, am I to pay for things I did not steal? Are you really trying to make me responsible for what I haven't done? But Jesus, when he comes to the cross, says, I am responsible for what they've done. I'm gladly taking the responsibility for the sins of your sins and my sins, and I'm gladly bearing them for us on the cross. So more than David and more than any of us, guys, Jesus knew rejection. He knew suffering. He knew what it was like to call out in prayer. We'll talk about that in a minute. So... The next time the bottom falls out or whatever goes wrong and friends forsake us and enemies are shouting us down, uh, we've got a place to go in prayer, do we not? We, we've got someone who knows what it feels like to feel like I'm drowning or to feel like I'm sinking or to say I'm calling out for help and help hasn't arrived yet. Jesus knows that. There's a reference there, Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. You can read that later. If you look at verses 7 through 12, uh, so David acknowledges, verse 5, I'm not sinless. But, but there's nothing that I've done that should have brought about my current circumstance. So what's going on? Look at verse 7. He says, It is for your sake that I've borne reproach. So not, it's not about me, God. It's about you. It's for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face, I've become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Four, here's cause again. So the first cause is verse 7, for God's sake. Second cause, verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. 
So zeal, jealousy, ardor, we might say today passion. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you. Lord, your human adversaries, they're, to get to you, they're picking on me. The things they would say to you, they're saying to me. Those who would reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, now these next three verses, they're describing a humble, godly response to difficulty. And yet in each one, when David says, this I did to humble myself before God, is a means of further reproach by the people that are already getting after me. So he says in verse uh, 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, that's a typical Jewish discipline, it became my reproach. I'm reproached for doing this thing. When I made sackcloth my clothing, a, a, a way of humbling myself before God, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. So those who sit in the gate, those are the politicians, right? Those are the rulers and the leaders of the city. So those are the highly placed. So he says, I'm the talk of those who are highly placed, influential to others, and I'm the joke of the drunkards, the, the dregs of society. I'm a joke. From the highest to the lowest, I'm on the receiving end of the jokes, the mockeries, the disdain. These latest attacks are because of his association with the Lord and his devotion to God's house, God's things. Verse 8 says, even his family members, his brothers, have rejected him over his zealous support for God. So here we'd say David's zeal for God is showing up the laissez-faire attitude of others around him. He's getting hammered because he's taking up God's name and God's cause, not because he's sinning. So he's come on the scene of religious people, and you guys know you can be highly religious, think of the people that crucified Jesus, and have nothing to do with God. You can go to church every Sunday and not know Jesus. So the fact that you're in a church setting, just like David's in a Jewish setting, a covenant a covenant, God's covenant people setting, he says, I'm still getting it from high and low, people who are after me because I love you and I'm putting you in your things first. Whatever the direct cause for David's suffering, in his lamenting, he's humbling himself before God, wept, fasted, refused the normal comforts, put on irritating sackcloth in order to draw near to God. So he still sees the ultimate outcome for his situation is set in God. I'm seeking God because God's behind all of this. Ultimately, God's the one who can deliver me. For his zealous, genuine efforts to honor God and draw near to him, he's castigated from high to low. He's the punching bag for everyone. And it's not for his sin. It's for his zeal and ardor for God. You know, uh, David, if you remember 2 Samuel 7, one of the key covenant passages in all the Bible uh, David says uh, to God, he says, uh, Lord, you know, your, your ark, the, your house is a tent. It's that little tent over there, and, and I, I'm a king, and I got a palace. And so I'd really like you to be in a house that represents your standing, your grandeur, your glory, and so I want to build you a house. And you remember Nathan the prophet ends up coming back and, and says, uh, you're not going to build that house, but your son Solomon will. So the rest of David's life, in no small part, this is what he's doing. It's not all he's doing, but this is part of what he's doing the rest of his life. He's accumulating wealth, and he's accumulating materials, and he's putting together plans from heaven, from God, for the temple. The rest of his life, at least as a back burner thing, it's going on constantly, he is making preparations for God's house because he loves God, and he wants to see God rightly honored. And so no small part of his life is spent in his zeal for God and God's house and God's things, God's glory, God's name. It's getting ready so Solomon will have everything he needs to build the house where God will be known and worship. He has zeal for God and God's house. You compare this to Jesus. Some of these are direct references. Uh, in verse 8, he says, I'm a stranger to my brothers. My, my mother's other sons are cutting me off. And you know, oftentimes, if nobody else is getting on you, 
It's your family members. It's the people that you think should know you the best are often the ones cutting you down. We don't want to do that. He says, I'm a stranger to my brothers. If you remember in John 7, it's Jesus' brothers that are cited as mockingly telling him that the Feast of Tabernacles is in Jerusalem. You better go down because you want to be famous. You want to make a name for yourself. So you ought to go down there. And then John tells us in the text, he says, because his brothers did not believe in him. He's being mocked, disassociated by his brothers. They don't believe in him. So within his home, he's getting hammered. Uh, verse 9, zeal for your house is quoted by Jesus' disciples. This is in John's gospel. It's recorded John 2. You remember, so David has zeal for God and God's house. And you remember in John 2 when Jesus goes to the temple and he sees the money changers ripping off the Gentiles coming through. And he sees the temple courts around the main temple area have become a barnyard for the sale of all the animals. And you remember what he does? He... He makes a whip and he chases those guys out and he overturns the tables and it says his, his disciples recalled zeal for your house will consume me. They recalled Psalm 69 and they said David wrote it but this was always about Jesus. Zeal for your house is what's motivated him to kick out and cleanse God's temple. And then verse 12 he's mocked by all by high to low. What happens to Jesus when he's hanging on the cross? If you read any of the synoptics, you see the same scene. That the religious leaders are there, and so is the peanut gallery. And, and from the thief on the cross, both of them initially mocking Jesus, to the Sanhedrin, the guys from the Jewish leadership, saying, if you'll come down, we'll believe in you. Yeah. Or he saved others, but he can't save himself. So he's being mocked from high to low when he's hanging on the cross. Zeal for his house is what's got David in his setting, and it's what has landed Jesus in his trouble as well. When we suffer for doing what's right, we're merely following Jesus' lead. Guys, suffering on this planet and this earth, it comes, right? It comes. And, and often having nothing to do with ourselves or what's going on or what we're doing it's just that death is still a deal on this planet until jesus comes and redeems that curse on the earth and life is extended right to live on planet earth is to live in a place of suffering but those who follow the lord just like david even in his day and we in the church today the promise is suffering for doing what's right it's not pats on the back jesus said in matthew 5 Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, or we could insert for zeal for God and God's things, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, now it doesn't feel like this in the moment, does it? Blessed are you when people insult you. Insults don't feel good. Persecute you, that doesn't feel good either in the moment. That might feel like drowning persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says you're actually blessed. It is an honor to suffer shame for Christ's name. And this is going on all over the world today. You know, we pray every week for the persecuted church. Christians, those who belong to Christ, are being persecuted, imprisoned. They're losing life, liberty, possessions because they bear Christ's name. This isn't way back then. It's not just over there. This is across the earth today. So, to the degree that it's tied to what we're doing, we want our suffering in this arena to be because we're putting God and God's things first, because of zeal for God. Peter talks about this quite a bit. First Peter talks about suffering a lot. One of the things there is don't suffer because you're a thief or you're a robber or you're doing wrong. He says there's no credit for that. But if you suffer for Christ's name, there is honor in that. And God will reward suffering because of Christ, because of being tied to Christ. So that's lament. So here's the second prayer, and this is a prayer for help. You see this in verses 13 through 18. So David says, As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Listen to all the requests in this. Deliver me 
and compare this with where he started the first lament, verses 1 through 6. Deliver me from sinking in the mire or the quicksand. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from deep waters where I feel like I'm drowning. Uh, Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. This is predicated on David's knowledge of God's perfections in his character. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. So it's to the Lord David's making his prayer. How often when trouble arises do we tell everybody about it except going to God in prayer about it? Guys, you find comfort. If you tell somebody else about your troubles so they can pray for you, that's a great thing. But sometimes when we're talking to others about our troubles, it's just a way to sort of uh, simmer, simmer in, in our troubles. And that's not healthy and that's not helpful. Tell us to pray with you, but we want to pray. We want to pray. David knew, I'm going to pray. And then he asked God all these very specific things. I mean, if you look through the list, it's answer me, deliver me, uh, don't let the flood answer uh, hide not your face, draw near, redeem me, ransom me. He's making lots of requests here. He's telling God very specifically what he's after. God, I can't save myself. Would you come in? Because you can. Would you come in and would you save me? If you compare that to Christ, <clears throat> there's two examples of this, very poignant examples. Uh, the first I'd point out is in Luke 22, 42 through 44. You remember when Jesus is facing uh, his last night and he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> Excuse me. He knows the one that can save his soul. You remember he takes the disciples, goes up to the garden, and he prays. You know, and he goes to the Father and he says, Lord, as I'm thinking about what, what's to come, uh, Lord, if it's possible, let's not do this thing from eternity past. Lord, if it's possible, could we forego the suffering for tomorrow but then he says but not my will your will be done and then he goes sees the disciples sleeping he comes back he prays again he sees the disciples sleeping he goes back he prays again but you can see this pattern that when Jesus is in trouble and when he feels like he's drowning he goes to his father and he prays and you've got this articulated this is Hebrews 5 excuse me verses 7 through 9 Where the writer there says this, of Christ. So thinking about Psalm 69, going to God in prayer. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now get this, with loud cries and tears. You know, David says, my voice is hoarse from crying out. And this says of Jesus, he was crying out with cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverence. Now, he did die, of course, but he didn't stay dead. We talked about that in Sunday school. He rose victoriously from the grave. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is not a message on suffering, but when we suffer, God always has things he wants to show us, and he uses suffering to mature us and change us in ways that the pressures or the heat or the challenge of suffering he uses as tools in our maturity. So he says um, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this isn't God learning. This is Jesus' humanity learning. And being made perfect, perfect as a priest who can sympathize with us, and perfect as a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So when the bottom's fallen out, whatever this looks like for us, whatever it feels like, We want to take that to God in prayer. And when we pray in Jesus' name, Lord, in Jesus' name, we're praying in the name of somebody who knows what it's like to suffer, right? More than we will ever know or could know. So when we're approaching God, when the bottom's fallen out and we're suffering and we think God doesn't care because he hasn't answered, Jesus knows better than you what suffering feels like. He knows better than me better than we ever can. He suffered more deeply than we can. So when we go to the Lord in prayer, or when we say, Jesus, help me, we're speaking, we're praying to somebody who knows what it's like to suffer. Absolute sympathetic high priest. Hebrews talks about him in that way. 
If you look at verses 19 through 21, okay, so he did a lament and a prayer, prayer for help. He's back to lament, verses 19 through 21. David says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Lord, you know everything that's going on and you know how I'm being kicked, kicked around. Reproaches have broken my heart. You know, a lot of times we don't let other people know what's impacted us or what's hurt us. But he's hurting, whether they know it or not. So that, David says, I'm in despair. I'm discouraged. I can't get up. I looked for pity, looking for somebody to come along and pat my shoulder and say, they're there. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, somebody to help, speak an encouraging word, tell me that they're praying for me, but I found none. They gave me, this is instead, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So David returns to his troubles, reproach, dishonor, shame. He says, my heart feels broken, I'm in despair, and there's absolutely no comfort. Now what this looked like specifically, I don't know, but verse 21 about poison for food, sour wine, my suspicion is he's ended up at someone's home and they've denigrated him further by offering him leftovers. Now this says the, the Hebrew there is poison or it's bitter. It's something that wouldn't have tasted good. It would have been bitter. And the wine is sour. It's probably flat and stale and sour. So I show up looking for some comfort and this is how I'm served. Now consider the very direct application of these verses to Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 19, reproach, shame, dishonor. John 19, thinking of Jesus' crucifixion, we've talked about this, by the way, on Good Friday, that service is helpful in thinking about what crucifixion for Jesus looked like. But you remember, prisoners were stripped when they were crucified. You know, there was a pope who uh, went through the Vatican, I won't remember when, uh, of all the male statues, he, he took a, some kind of hammer and he broke up their private parts, because their private parts were on the, all these statues, and they put leaves over them to cover up the damage that had been done. Because there's this sense, right, of nakedness since the fall represents shame. It, it discloses us in our weakness. Well, <clears throat> Jesus would have been stripped on the cross because for the Romans, it wasn't just about death. You could behead someone and it'd be over, right? If death is the deal, we can make short work of this, and the Romans certainly could, but it wasn't just about death, was it? It was about dishonor and shame and reproach. You wanted the person hanging on the cross to be as humiliated as possible for their sake and also as a warning to anyone else that saw this. It's like, I'm not going to mess with the Romans because this is what would happen to me. So it was intentionally reproachful, humiliating, and shameful. Jesus bore that for us. If you look at verse 21, he served poison and sour wine. That's directly applied to Jesus in all four Gospels. It says he was offered sour wine on the cross, straight from Psalm 69, speaking ultimately of Jesus and his suffering. And then last in this cycle, the third prayer. Now this time, it's not for help. It's for judgment against his adversaries. This is verses 22 through 29. <clears throat> David prayed, let their, their own table. And you'll notice um, in David's prayer for judgment, He's praying that God's judgments on his adversaries reflect what they have done. So he's praying, Lord, would your justice be meted out on these people? In the way that they've sinned against me, would that be the way that your justice is reflected? So he says, let their own table before them become a snare. The table they set for me to give me bitterness and sour wine, may their table become a snare when they're at peace, sitting at home at their table, let it become a trap. The place of hospitality where he should have been served was used as a way to denigrate and further oppress him. And so David's prayer is, would you use that same table and that same setting against them in righteous judgment? Uh, let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see. His eyes are failing. He says, may their eyes be darkened so they can't see. Make their loins tremble continually, fear, despair. Uh, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. 
May their camp be <clears throat> excuse me, a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. This is directly cited in Acts 1, verse 20, regarding Judas's, Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. So, verse 26, Because, or for, judge them this way, Lord, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. They recount the pain of those you have wounded. Uh, this is a theme in other parts of Scripture, usually applied to the nation. You'll see this in Isaiah, and you'll also see it in the Old Testament book of Obadiah. In, in that case, the scenario was, God told Israel, I'm going to judge you for your faithlessness. But when the Babylonians come in, they judge Israel in a way that was harsher, God says, than he intended. He says he's going to judge the Babylonians for going beyond what he intended. And in Obadiah, it's the Edomites, and they take advantage of the fact that Israel has been persecuted, knocked down, and destroyed by the Babylonians, and they go in to make hay over the Jews at that time. And it's because of that that God says the Edomites will cease to exist as a nation. Because while I was disciplining my people, you guys went beyond anything I had in mind. That's the thought here with David. Add to them punishment upon punishment, May they have no acquittal from you, no get-out-of-jail card from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Lord, would you not preserve their life, but would you cut their life short on the earth? Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You remember this is language or this is inference out of the book of Deuteronomy. You remember God told the Jews, if you do right, I will bless you. If you do wrong, specifically idolatry, I will curse you. That's the same thought here. He says, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Now David's praying, and, and again, because of the way he was treated, David's praying that God's judgment would be meted out on his enemies. And I know this is strange language for Christians in every, every uh, what's called an imprecatory psalm where we're calling down God's judgment on the wicked for Christians every time you've got to talk about this because it's a deal, isn't it? So David's prayer is just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, if you've read C.S. Lewis on the Psalms, he calls the imprecatory prayers as somehow deficient of theology. They're not. So David is praying for justice. He's praying for God's righteous judgment. What happens in Revelation 20 at what's called the great white throne judgment? So it says, the sea gives up the dead. All the dead stand before King Jesus and he's sitting on a great white throne. And what happens there? Well, perfect justice is meted out. It says the books are open, the book of life's open. And, and those who are receiving God's justice through Christ's decree are going into the lake of fire, the second death, and they're each one punished appropriate to what they had done. They're going to suffer God's judgment according to what they had done. And guys, that's effectively what David is praying for the enemies. He's praying that God's righteous judgment would fall on his enemies. There was nothing wrong with his prayer then, and it will be their end, Revelation 20, and the end of all those who've rejected Christ. That's the end, unless there's repentance and faith in Christ as Savior. Now, if you think about this, Saul of Tarsus was condemning. We don't know if he was there for Jesus' trial, but he was there for Stephen's trial not long after. He's condemning Christians to death. He's having Christians arrested, right? They're, he's being brought back. Now, if, if Saul of Tarsus hadn't repented and become a Christian, faith in Christ, Acts 9, he would stand before God at the judgment seat and he would receive God's perfect justice for what he had done to God's people. And that's what David is praying for his enemies in his day. So justice is going to occur. But for us as Christians today, we have a different call related to those who would persecute us. And remember, we've talked about this in some prior psalms, but from the cross, what's Jesus' prayer? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what's the call on Christians today? It's to pray for those who persecute us. So this is something the persecuted church around the world today prays. And when we pray for them, we often pray not just that Christians are established and maintained in their faith, but we're praying that those who are oppressing them come to faith as well. Because, guys, in every case, for every Christian, God has made his enemy into his child and his friend. There's nobody that was okay with God before. We were dead in trespass and sin. And, and God, God calls the dead to life. God makes his enemies his friends. And so that's our call today. It's different than David's day. 
But his prayer was for justice. Our prayer is for mercy so that they will get the same benefit we got, faith in Christ, eternal life, and joy forever. So it's a different day, and we're praying in a little different way. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, by the way, you'll see this a little bit in Matthew 23. Jesus pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders of his day. He says, you guys, your, your time is coming, and it's not good. Woe to you, trouble to you, because that's coming in your judgment. Matthew 23, prayers calling for God's judgment on the wicked won't be fulfilled on those who repent. And that's why we continue to share the gospel, even with those, perhaps especially with those who are persecuting the righteous. I want to conclude verses 30 through 36. And you've got to love the way this psalm has gone. So save me, help me. And I've got all this trouble and I need your help on one hand, and I hope that the enemy goes down on the other, but listen to how this psalm resolves itself. I will praise the name of, the God, of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Remember, God ordained animal sacrifice, but David says it's a heart that's set for God that's more important to God than an animal on the altar. When the humble see it, they'll be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, doesn't despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So what a way to end a psalm about trouble and difficulty and God save me. It ends on this note of I will praise and God will deliver. I will praise and God will deliver. David knows God's going to bring redemption, joy out of sorrow, and Jesus' new resurrection life would follow his death. And we want to, I want to say this. You can't afford to let other people's attitudes, actions, words, disparaging comments, accusations keep us from honoring God. We don't want to be controlled adversely by others who don't have God and God's things in mind. We can't afford to be derailed. David was not derailed from this. He still closes on this high note of praise and calling others to praise as well. The story in Matthew 26 is helpful on this. So, uh, you remember there's a woman and it's right before Jesus' suffering and the woman comes up and she breaks this vial and it's got this ridiculously expensive ointment. She pours it over Jesus. So it's, it's, this, it's this zealous act of worship, right? And what immediately follows her zealous act of worship? Everybody's patting her on the back and everybody's saying, oh, well done. They're all recriminating her. They're all telling her, you've blown it. Why did you do this? You should have sold it and taken care of the poor. And you remember what Jesus says. Now, we don't know her name, but God bless her, right? We don't know her name. But Jesus says this act will be known throughout the world for the rest of time. Her zealous worship for me is not going to be shouted down by your poor vision of things. Uh, but this is going to be a testimony to her and of zealous worship for God as long as the Bible stands. It's recorded. That act of worship is recorded. Zeal for your house consumes me. Passion for Christ consumes me. That was all it was about. That was David's deal. That was Jesus' deal. That was her deal as well. And guys, let me ask you this. Romans 12.1 is the beginning of the application of all the theology in Romans 1 through 11. And when Romans 1 comes out of the gate... And all the theology is answered by application. What are we told to do? I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is just your reasonable service. For you to offer yourself everything you are, everything you have, everything you can be to God is not extra credit. It's just what we should do. It's our reasonable service. But it should be born of that same attitude that Jesus had, that David had. It's zeal for God and God's things. That's what it's about. Uh, 
there's a reason Christians are persecuted around the world today, and there's a reason that Christians have become more and more the whipping boy here in the United States. It's because Jesus shows up every other would-be Savior as deficient. It's because Jesus has arrived on the scene and he shows up any other claim to truth, to life, to salvation. He came in among his own people and they rejected him. His, his zeal was consuming that sense in the Jewish setting. And friends, it's often the case today in the churches too, is it not? Churches are forsaking Christ and the truth around the Western world, especially today. But if we're going to suffer, let it be because like David, it's zeal for God and God's house that is moving us forward. And if somebody wants to blame us, let it be because we're overextending ourselves and what we want to take on for God's glory. That it's about Him and His things, and we make no apology for that. There was a worship a service I was in years ago, and there was a couple, they were visiting the church. No one there knew them that morning. They'd walked in. And during the, uh, during the singing, um, uh, you know, you could do whatever you want, just like here. If you want to stand during worship or if you want to sit, if you want to kneel, I mean, we're, we're good with any of that, right? It's the position of the heart. Well, some people were standing and some people were sitting, and this, this gal gets up. And she turns around to the rest of the church and she says, uh, isn't he worthy, you know, stand. Isn't he worthy of our worship, you know, so stand with us. And she's all in, you know, she is all in. Well, God bless, uh, one of the elders of the church <laughs> came over and asked her to sit down because he saw what she was doing as disruptive. Well, we never saw them again. She went to the bathroom, she was weeping and crying in the bathroom, and she and her husband left. And I've never forgotten that, because she was unapologetic, she was all in. So, if we're going to be criticized, let it be because of something like that. We're all in. And zeal for your house, Lord, that's what we're about. And you know, guys, the days are winding down. Our opportunities, who knows how long we have them. So, zeal for your house, God and God's things first. Let that be what marks us out as well, okay? Not, not doing the wrong things, not because we're perfect, because we're not. We don't have it all together. We're not approaching God in our merit. Lion and Lamb is not some special group of Christians. If you think that, you haven't been around long enough. So, we're approaching God in the worthiness of Christ, and it's our aim to make much of Christ. Okay, that's the thing. Zeal for God's house. If you would stand, I'd like to close by reading from Titus 2. Let's read that together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory 